0: Philip was only eight years old, and he didn't really get on with other children of his age because he had Down syndrome. But he did go to Sunday school, and on Easter Sunday morning, his Sunday school teacher had brought a whole lot of egg boxes and asked all the children in the Sunday school class to go out into the churchyard. And fill these boxes with signs of new life. The children went out, did their thing and came back in. And they put all the boxes in the middle of the class. And the Sunday school teacher opened them one by one to see what was in them. And in one was a flower. And another was a little insect. And a third one had got a leaf in and so on. Till they came to the last one, they opened it. And there was nothing in it. Who is this, they asked. Philip put his hand up, it's mine. And all the other children went, oh Philip, yet again you haven't understood what you're supposed to do. Yes I have, said Philip, it's empty. The tomb was empty. (laughs) And that's what we're thinking about tonight. The tomb is empty. The empty tomb is the hallmark of the Christian faith. And this evening we're going to look at the resurrection through the lens of Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to ask ourselves three questions. We're going to ask, why is the resurrection important? What is the proof of the resurrection? And what difference does the resurrection mean to me? Why is it important? What's the proof? And what does it mean to me? The epistle to One to, to the church in Corinth, the first one, is a big book. It's got 16 chapters, which is quite long for an epistle. And the first 14 chapters all deal with moral and ethical issues. In other words, how we live. But when we get to this chapter that Norman read to us, chapter 15, Paul changes his tone. And we start to look at a big doctrinal issue. That means what we believe. So we go from how we live to what we believe. And for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus is a big one. For him, everything hangs on the fact of the resurrection. Now, I nearly brought our little game of Jenga from home. Now, do you know what Jenga is? It's a children's game, or a bit of an adult's game in my case. And it's a wooden tower made of... square square, rectangles of wood. And the idea is that you take these little slivers of wood out and put them on the top and build the tower higher and higher and it becomes rather wobbly. And you get to the point where removing one more piece will bring the whole thing crashing down. And for Paul, that one piece is the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the whole Christian tower... Comes tumbling down. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Corinth is in Greece. It's a Greek church steeped in Greek philosophy, steeped in Greek culture. And that Greek culture was different from that of the Jews. Now, the Jews in the Old Testament had some idea of resurrection. Although it's not really explicit, you get great passages in the Old Testament, like Job chapter 19, where Job says this. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, then in my flesh I will see God. Quite explicit expectation of resurrection after death, but in his body. And then in the New Testament, there are divisions. Some of the Jewish leaders, like the Sadducees, don't believe in a physical resurrection. Some of them, like the Pharisees, do believe in a physical resurrection. But in Greece, they were steeped in the teachings of Plato. And Plato had taught that the body is mortal and dies, but that the spirit existed before the world was created, and will continue beyond the world. So the Corinthian Christians had found it countercultural to believe in a physical resurrection because their culture just talked about preserving the soul. Well, enough of the history in the background. Why did Paul put so much emphasis on the physical resurrection of Jesus? Why is it important? To understand this, we have to understand that we all have a fatal disease, and the fatal disease is called death. The disease is caused by sin, and that sin is rooted in a rebellion against God. Sin is not just about the choices we make, it's an inherited disease, it's something with which we're all afflicted. We sin because we're sinners. And we're sinners because we sin. And whichever way you want to cut it, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. So we're all in the process of dying. But it's not God's purpose for death to have the last word. His purpose is that the stranglehold that death has on sin and death That should be broken. And the only way for that to be broken is for justice to be done and sin to be paid for. And that's what the death of Jesus achieved. It achieved justice for our sin. His death was a substitute death. He didn't die for his own sin. He was a perfect man. But he died the death of a sinner for our sin. If you like, a divine exchange went on. He took our sin, and we take his eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus took that wage for us. So here's the main thing. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, if he wasn't raised to new life, then neither will you and I be. If he wasn't raised from the dead, the price of sin has not been paid. Justice hasn't been satisfied. And we are still condemned because of our sin. So on the proof of the resurrection stands or falls our eternal hope. It's the one thing, as with the game of Jenga, that can bring the whole lot crashing down. So the resurrection, did it actually happen? Is there proof and what is the basis on which we can believe it? If Norman had read some of the verses earlier in chapter 15, and he wasn't supposed to, I didn't ask him to. But had he read that, you would have heard these words. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So how do we know that Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, undeniably, the tomb was empty. The tomb had been guarded by Pilate's finest Roman army, and yet it was empty. The Jewish authorities said that the disciples had stolen the body, but a body was never (coughs) produced. In fact, we don't read that any search went on to find this body, It appears that all we get is a few concocted excuses from the Pharisees. The tomb was empty. And here in this chapter, Paul has listed all the witnesses to the resurrection. More than 500 witnesses had seen Jesus alive. And at the time that Paul was writing, most of them were still alive. You could have gone and questioned them. And I reckon that's good enough in a court of law. 500 witnesses would prove most cases, wouldn't it? But what is happening to the disciples during those three days? The most telling proof for me is the disciples' reaction to what happened over those three days. Had they planned to steal the body had they planned to concoct some fanciful thing about a resurrection, then they wouldn't have been hiding away secretly in fear of the authorities and the Romans, which is what we read in John chapter 20 that they were doing. They were grieving. They were distraught. They were fearful. That wasn't the act of conspiracists. Those were men who were fearing for their very lives. But once they'd met the risen Jesus, once they'd been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, they turned from being this group of cowards into men who were fearless, men who would die for their faith. See, the funny thing is that men will die for what they know is true, but they won't die for what they know is false. They will die for what they know is true, but they won't die for what they know is false. The disciples died for what they knew to be true. And what's the final proof of the resurrection? It's the witness of the church over 2,000 years. Countless men and women, century after century, are able to state with Job... I know that my Redeemer lives. And as Paul states, Jesus indeed is risen from the dead. So we've seen why it's important. We've seen what evidence is given for the resurrection. But finally, what difference does our belief in the resurrection make to us? Well, I want to quickly just to contemplate three things. And the first is this that the resurrection gives us a hope and a confidence in the future. A hope and a confidence in the future. Sin has been paid for in full, so we don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear the consequences of sin, which is death. We have hope and confidence in the promises of God. And this fact alone should change our lives. The Bible is a wonderful mosaic of detail about the future, about our future life with Christ and our future life in Christ. There's a great deal of what's to come. There's a great deal in Revelation and in Daniel, in Ezekiel and in Isaiah, in Matthew and in Thessalonians, about the future. Tells us how Christ will come to take his church, to meet him in the air. It tells us of the things that will happen in the end times, of the tribulations and conflicts. It will tell us how Christ will send his angels to take the wicked away to destruction. It tells us of how Jesus will come with his church to reign again on earth. Some of that might make us fearful, but we have no cause to fear for our future. Because of the resurrection, we are safe in Christ. We can face the future with absolute confidence. So we can face the future with confidence. But secondly, the resurrection changes our view of our current circumstances. It gives us a contentment, a peace where we are. We are assured that because we're no longer under condemnation, we're no longer alienated from God. We're no longer dead in our sins. We are alive in Christ. We have new life in the Spirit of God. We are sealed by that Spirit for that day when he will come to reign eternally. And we will reign with him. So we shouldn't fear. We should have contentment and peace in our present. Christ holds us this very moment in the palm of his hand. As Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We have confidence in the future, but contentment in the present. But lastly, the resurrection gives us more than that. It gives us a new motivation for living. It's no longer I who live, Paul says, but Christ who lives in me. If you went further on in chapter 15, you'd read these words. Paul says, therefore stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. The risen Christ living in us is so much more than just being peaceful and content. The living Christ living in us is about a passion for him. It's about a passion for his work. It's about labouring for him with all the strength that he gives us. It's passionate service. It's service to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the hallmark of the Christian. The hallmark of the Christian isn't just what they believe. It's not just what they say. It's their passion for the work of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus gives us that. Gives us that hope for the future. It gives us that peace and contentment. But it gives us a passion. A passion for his work. And a passion for his mission. So does the fact of the resurrection make an actual difference to my life? Is this more than just knowledge in my head? Is it something that's in my heart? God wants the reality of that resurrection to pervade our life in every part, to define us, to give us a purpose, to be our rationale. He wants the resurrection of Jesus to give us a hope, to give us a peace, but to give us a passion for Jesus. There is a song which is in our Songs of Fellowship songbook, which is written by Gloria Gaither, It's a song which starts, God sent his son. And it sums up to me, for me, the meaning of the resurrection in the life of the believer. Let me just read you the first and last verse of this hymn as we close. God sent his son, they called him Jesus. He came to love, heal and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove that my Saviour lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living, just because he lives. And then one day, I'll cross the river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then, as death gives way to victory... I'll see the lights of glory and I'll know he reigns. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Christ is indeed risen from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Hallelujah, praise his name. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the fact of the resurrection. We thank you that it is a fact. We thank you that it's indisputably true and that we can witness to that in our lives. Lord, we thank you that that resurrection has secured our eternal future. We thank you that we are at peace with God now in the present. But Father, we pray that that resurrection will impassion our hearts, make us so desperate not only to be one with you, but to serve you and to share in your mission, that you become our all in all, that the resurrection lives and breathes and finds its being in our hearts. Lord, we pray to your glory that as a result of your work in our hearts this week, we will affect your mission in this place and your kingdom may come, and the glory will be given to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.